Welcome to Writing the Wrong Way, the podcast for writers who strive to be bold and readers who crave something new. I'm your host, Jonathan Ball. I want to thank you for being here, and I want us to stay in touch. So subscribe to this podcast, then go to writingtherongway.com and enter your best email to receive the Martian Embassy Missive, my bi-weekly newsletter where I let you know what's happening on Mars, where we're always making big plans. Join the Martians so you don't get left out of the invasion at writingtherongway.com. And as a special bonus, I'll send you a free book. Speaking of books, my new book is called The National Gallery, and it contains sonnets about Leatherface from the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, elegies lamenting the death of my iPhone, and other strange missives from yours truly, the Poet Laureate of Hell. Visit thenationalgallery.ca to order your signed copy. That's thenationalgallery.ca. So I'm talking to Lisa Robertson, uh, the author of you know, many, many, many books, uh, the most recent of which is her debut novel, The Baudelaire Fractal. Uh, although she's, you know, uh, previously known primarily for poetry and essays, and you know, uh, you know other, you know, writings on art, and uh, you know, really one of my favorite uh, Canadian writers. <laughs> although she's, you know, currently locked down in France. Um, and Lisa, I maybe we could just start with you talking a little bit about what the Baudelaire Fractal is. And maybe just describing the novel and that kind of central, you know, conceit of this author who, um, you know, has discovered herself as the author of Baudelaire's complete works. Sure. Um, it's uh, it's a novel that's looking to represent the life of a woman writer. Uh, it. Um, moves around through various time frames in order to uh, compose this representation. Part of it is set in the 1980s in Paris. Part of it is set in rural France, in roughly speaking, the very recent past. And part of it is set in 1840s and 50s Paris uh, during the lifetime of uh, Charles Baudelaire the uh, French poet. Um, the setup of the novel is that the main character, whose name is Hazel Brown, wakes one morning in middle age in a hotel room when she's on the road um, to discover in her early waking consciousness that she has um, become or has um, the author of all of the works of Baudelaire or has perhaps received this authorship without actually being or having ever been or having ever wanted to become Baudelaire. So it begins with this conundrum, and the narrative seeks to unwind it a little. How could this have come to be? It's framed um, by a series of hotel rooms or cheap rented rooms which um, the young Hazel Brown inhabits in her early perambulations. So each chapter describes a room and then the description transforms into um, an examination of um, 
femininity, literary history, subjectivity, and style. Style in both um, the literary sense and in the sense of fashion and the sense of, of um, self-representation, self-presentation in the social realm. Now, I'm really That's, interested in... Sorry, I'm really interested in the, in the influences that you kind of are drawing together with this particular book. Uh, so I was wondering if you could talk a, a bit about that. To me, um, the, the books that it kind of makes me think immediately of are, of course, um, you know, Baudelaire, but, but specifically his book Fan Farlow, um, which to me is in sort of a loose group of, uh, you know, meditative, um, existentially concerned uh, novels uh, or novellas, uh, including, you know, again, Baudelaire's Fun Farlow, uh, Notes from Underground. Uh, to me, in some respects, you kind of are rejuvenating this kind of dead genre and injecting it with kind of a, a, a new and, you know, in many ways more interesting uh, feminist perspective. At the same time, the book that just most obviously connects uh, in my mind is Gail Scott's Heroine. Uh, and I interviewed uh, Gail Scott recently when she was republishing heroin. So maybe that was just why it was on my mind. But just the idea of this narrator who's you know waking in this room, who's just sort of in this room and uh, at the same time kind of casting her consciousness out and into these different time periods. So I'm curious to know if, um, uh, and then of course Borges, uh, you know, it reminds me very much of the Borges Don Quixote uh, story. Um, so I'm curious to know if, those were your influences or if you had other influences and specifically kind of how you see this book in relation to, you know, uh, other books in general, uh, but also maybe, you know, what else is kind of happening, uh, in, you know, now. I, I read uh, heroin uh, more than 30 years ago when it was first published. It meant a lot to me then. Um, but I, I didn't reread it, uh, as, I was writing this novel, nor did I consciously refer to it or think about it. Um, it is part of a continuum of uh, feminist um, fiction, um, which would include people like Eileen Miles and her novel Inferno, a poet's novel, um, which I have read much more recently uh, a few times and have taught. And also going back a little further, Lynn, Lynn Tillman's novel, Haunted Houses. So there, there has been definitely in the past 30 years, let's say, um, a feminist turn towards the genre of the Bildungsroman, uh, which is to say the uh, novel of the young artist coming of age. Um Baudelaire's novel, novel Fan Farlow, was one of the texts that I read when I was reading this. I, I read as much Baudelaire as possible as I was reading this, no, the, writing this novel. But I, I wouldn't say it particularly influenced me. It has a very specific um, narrative about um, a love story. And... Um, <clears throat> The Baudelaire Fractal, my novel, is um, specifically not constructed around a narrative of a love story of any sort. Um, I think the Baudelaire texts 
I know that the Baudelaire texts that influenced me much, um, much more consciously were his prose poems, Paris Spleen. And I've been very interested in the relationship between the poems of Paris Spleen and um, the work of uh, Jean-Jacques Rousseau, especially his, um, his Reveries of a Solitary Walker. So I've been interested in sort of tracking parallels between that late Rousseau text and that um, late Baudelaire text, and also back as far as uh, Montaigne, the, um, the essayist. And the use of um, not narrative, but uh, a fractured continuity of introspection is part of the um, um, stylistic texture that interested me, where a first-person narrator's introspection and um, observation of their daily life um, is highly filtered by a consciousness of a history of literary style, so that the position of the narrator is extremely citational. There is an echo in Baudelaire's use of the first person, um, an echo that includes the voice of Rousseau, includes the voice of Lawrence Stern, um, includes the voice of Montaigne, also his younger contemporary Flaubert, um, and a lot of other people we read a lot less of now, such as uh, Sainte-Beuve, the critic, um, de Bonville, a poet who was Baudelaire's friend, who was much more famous than Baudelaire was in their time, but tends not to be read in Anglophone literary circles now. Um, so I was reading Baudelaire's contemporaries. Stendhal was also very important. Um, in other words, uh, a background as a feminist reader of somewhat autobiographical autobiographical fiction was overlaid by my current stylistic interests in um, in um, an early romantic um, voice. You mentioned Stendhal. Uh, you know, he famously said that the novel is a mirror carried along a high road. And I'm curious to know, like, where you see the novel sort of fitting into the literary cosmos, having you know come to it you know relatively late uh, after you know t- t- writing poetry and essays primarily. Like, how do you have you how have you seen this as a different project in the sense of you know that what's your sense of that medium, relatively speaking? Well, I'm somebody who switched genres and switched, moved around stylistically quite a lot. So, in a way, the decision to move into the form of the novel is simply parallels a, a history of similar decisions to sidestep lyric and move into epic, for example, or to try to. Um, 
reconstitute the essay as an experimental um, form. So I don't really feel that having written a novel is um, really represents a big, a, a very big change for me individually as a writer. I am increasingly aware that the, um, generally speaking, uh, the public general readers um, notions of literary form put the novel at um, at the forefront as some sort of um, dominant form and so very often you get sort of treated as if you know finally you've arrived at the novel sort of thing it's, it's um, interesting compared to the historical uh, status of the novel as this low form uh, that people would devolve into as opposed to, you know, this sort of, you know, market prominence at the moment. Do you see it as a fundamentally, how do you see it as related to writing the prose poem though? Because myself, I'm fascinated with the prose poem and primarily work in the prose poem as well. And I see you as uh, certainly the best, you know, prose poet from Canada, if not um, at all <laughs> at the current time. Um, so I'm really interested in your kind of thoughts on the prose poem and how this novel kind of connects to that or, or differs from that. Well, it's, it's, it's being a little bit overly, um, overly explicit to say that the main difference has to do with duration. Right? <laughs> I mean, I've just written a text that's a couple hundred pages um, is divided into chapters, which um, in a certain way could be read as prose poems. And the titling of those chapters suggests as much since each one is borrows the title of one of Baudelaire's prose poems from Paris Spleen. Um, but Part of my experience of having taken this sort of sideways step from the prose poem into the novel is it's an experience of, of spaciousness. When you know that your writing process is going to go on, it's going to go on for a year or two years um, in the same text, um, it, it gives you a lot of room to... Uh, try things to take things further than you might in a shorter text, um, to take different kinds of risks for me. Now, I'm really interested in uh, sentences, <laughs> talking sentences uh, maybe with you. Uh, so I'm curious to know if you could uh, just talk a bit more about or ex explicate maybe that you're opening a preface sentence for this book, which is, uh, you know, these things happened, but not as described. So I was wondering if you could unpack that uh, a little bit and how are you, you're using that uh, as a sort of entry point into the book. Um, you know, I have to say a lot of my compositional moves in this happen at a very intuitive level. So, um, I, I, I don't have a sort of uh, roster of intention um, that I can hold, pull out to explain why I wrote any particular sentence. 
But what I can, what what I liked about this sentence, which came to me near the end of uh, uh, near the end of the process of writing the book, was that it 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 really underlined the um, the tension or the space between um, experience and description. That the in other words, the linguistic description doesn't um, doesn't match up to or add up to um, experience per se, but a space is left between, and perhaps this space in its tension and in its um, lack of cohesiveness is the space of literature or the space of the reader's cognition. In other words, the sentence is pointing very clearly to the fact that this is not a work of realism, um, but is hopefully indicating that the um, refusal of the realist contract is an invitation um, into um, a wider, more densely figured um, kind of reading. Do you see yourself, just to go back a little bit to uh, um, some of the, the influences that this book had and didn't have, did you see yourself as writing against any of those particular books? Like a book like Fanfarlo, um, do, you see, do you see yourself as sort of writing against that sort of a text in any particular way? Because in, in the novel, you do talk, uh, for example, about the painting uh, uh, that had that you know, female figure erased from it. Or, you know, painted over, perhaps at you know the request. Corbet's painting of his studio, which in which the uh, portrait of Jeanne Duval, Baudelaire's had been. Yeah, and so, in a moment like that, to me, the the book sort of ends up, in a sense, sort of meditating around this difficulty. Uh, you mentioned a different point in the book. Um, uh, the, co- the quote is that uh, the girl is an alarm and you're sort of talking about uh, you know th- the removal of this name being a historical choice this is a different uh, and um, there's no nameless girl there's no girl outside language the girl is not an animal who goes aesthetically into the ground as many of the philosophers would have it the girl is an alarm this idea that uh, this sort of figure uh, you know of the the girl which the culture or the literary history keeps trying to kind of race. You've got these, you know, these, this, this kind of painting as an example uh, of this sort of attempt to both um, uh, erase or, you know, ret- clear a space uh, by kind of removing the figure. I'm curious to know if you see uh, a book like this as uh, recuperating that space or attempting to take up space in that certain way if that um, or, or to kind of enact a, an alarm in that sense um, to sound the alarm I suppose would be a better metaphor is clearly uh, seeking to participate participate in, in, a, in a broad vision of literature 
and um, generally speaking, the broad vision of literature in uh, Western culture is masculine. So, for most um, women-identified writers, there's um, there's a double bind that's going on within the desire to write. One is this compulsion towards a form that, in some sense, provides a kind of an aesthetic and intellectual pleasure for the for the woman who is the reader and perhaps the writer. On the at the same time as the tradition um, specifically um, erases or refuses um, the history of subjectivity that um, women bring, bring into language. So most of us who are women have to find some way to, um, to approach this, this conundrum. Um, some might approach it simply by uh, ignoring it and pretending it doesn't exist. Others by turning it into um, a philosophical content within the work, um, a form of critique within the work. Um, others, other women might approach it by being um, stimulated by um, our anger about that tradition. I mean, this novel that I've written probably does a little bit of all those things. Um, I don't think there's any any one single way that a feminist writer can um, successfully approach um, this millennia-long tradition which excludes her. Um, so here, yes, the combination of um, anger and pleasure and identification and refusal um, all play a part. Um, the figure of the young girl has a particular presence in Baudelaire's work, but in um, the work of Euro European literature and philosophy in general, um, the French term is la jeune fille, and there's a presence of this almost hackneyed or mawkish uh, jeune fille in even the most um, anarchic philosophy, such as, um, um, I'm, I'm sort of at a loss for words right now. Recently, recently I read an essay by Giorgio Lagomben about the young girl, for example. Um, it, it makes me think of a lot, and as well as you know, something else you were talking about previously of um, your first book, uh, Debbie and Epic, um, and that's my you know, sorry, and uh, just that sort of again it, that massive motion towards. Um, it seems like to me that in some ways your kind of maybe response is uh, to this kind of massive question of you know how how to insert oneself into a literary history that is perhaps hostile to your presence. Uh, it seems to me in some respect your 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 response has been to almost um uh with this bit of a wryness uh 
make a massively ambitious claim for a space in literature. <laughs> you know, start with writing an epic, uh, you know, and kind of move. Uh, it, it, not all your books, but many of your books will kind of take that uh, that massive stake in the. Um, uh, I think also of the weather. When I, one of my favorite books of yours is the weather, uh, and this kind of pastoral um, reclamation, uh, in a manner of speaking. I'm curious to know if you, like, is this a project uh, for you, or is it just something that you seem to be intuitively kind of doing from time to time, or or, or a place that you, you do you see the, your particular uh, books as you know massive projects in this way, or do you sort of all see it as sort of a continuum, uh, a body of work that you're just kind of diving in and out of as maybe you know uh, it's taking you? Oh, I think both those things are true. Um, I've never yet written a book that I've completely mapped out before being written. There's always a strongly emotional component which, which begins, which begins uh, a new project. Uh, and that emotional compulsion is, you know, it's personal or individual, internal, but it also is accompanied and, um, and given space by um, an existing community of um, feminist texts and friends and readers. So I think in every instance, I've been able to find the confidence to carry through what begins as an emotional sort of arrival of an idea by talking about it or um, with other women writers or if not if I don't have the freedom to speak with specific writers because of distance say you know, now I live quite you know, far away from most of my um, closest um, writing companions, um, then finding finding precedents in, in, in texts that I'm reading. So it's consistently been a surprise to me to discover that as I move from book to book, I do seem to end up Involving myself in um, sometimes pretty big, um, pretty big um, projects, which take on extremely traditional, if not masculinist, um, Western genres, um, such as since you mentioned Debbie, in, in that case, the Virgilian epic, or um, the the Georgic, or the pastoral, or in this case, the buildings and um, this completely canonical author figure we have in, in Baudelaire. Um, I can't exactly say why that is, and I'm not very interested in, in sort of doing some sort of auto-psychoanalysis in that sense. Um, but I can say that I'm repeatedly shocked as a reader when I enter into big reading um, 
reading projects just in order to continue my self-education, um, how strongly compelled I am by very many of the male authors who at the same time I feel institutionally um, constrained to hate. <laughs> so there is um, um, very often a kind of double energy going on where I'm learning about a form, a genre, a style, a history within literature. I'm in a certain, to, a, to some extent, I'm identifying with um, the authors who forwarded those genres or styles. At the same time that um, I'm recognizing, um, A, um, my complicity, um, in in a dominant institutionalization of literature through such an identification and um, my own very specific um, refusal my, my, my desire to to mount critiques um, to undo the forms of authority that these um, these texts, um, continue to uh, propagate. So I've never really been able to solve the tension between those two positions, which probably is why I've continued to find myself in different kinds of, um, of textual engagements um, where I'm struggling once again with that um, an identification and a... do you think that um, your attraction to the prose poem is, is part of that uh, do you see an especial attraction to this form where um, there's a sort of built in um, fluidity in the sense that it's existing kind of in this in between space uh, in between you know and, and is already sort of by its nature blending, you know, the essay, the poem, the, uh, pr you know, prose fiction in a manner of speaking and so on. Well, I hope this doesn't disappoint you when I have to say that I feel no attraction to prose poems. Oh. <laughs> and I, I write in, in lineated as much as I write in prose and I just, uh, do what I seem to need to do in the moment. <laughs> hmm. um, and I have felt that um, some of my previous work could have just as easily been called a novel or anything else. Um, my, my, my interest in these, um, in these uh, um, formal labels is minimal. Let's sure. say. Um, and I feel a necessity and, uh, um, and a deep interest in, in continuously sort of sidestepping um, and, and mixing and combining. And most of my books of poetry have, in, in fact, done that, um, have combined some sort of lyric voice alongside a more... Um, um, 
prosaic movements. Is it frustrating how the the market tries to sort of slot you into boxes? Because I I, I feel a similar sentiment in that every time I put out a book, it gets called something else than what I thought it was. I don't feel that frustration personally. I feel that um, for, first of all, each of my books has been published as the genre in which I imagined it. So if I said it's a book of poetry, it's been published as a book of poetry. If I said it's a book of essays, etc. So I, I haven't had that particular conflict. Um, but um, apart from that, my sense is that once the work is out there in the world, it's not for me to determine how it's received. Um, my work um, as a writer ends when the book is published. And I've been quite delighted by the variety of ways in which all kinds of different communities of readers have um, taken on my work. Um, whether those, those readers are uh, people deeply involved as um, studio, studio artists in the contemporary visual art field, which is a, a big part of my readership, or whether they're, you know, American academics with a scholarly background in, in modernist avant-garde or American language poetry or something like that, or, you know, whether they're young punk women who love Kathy Acker, you know, I mean, there's, there's a, there's a, I have found that there's a lot of variation in my readership. And basically if somebody finds a way to relate with relate to work I've made I'm it's I'm I'm all for it I don't want to tell them they're they're reading in the wrong way I think that's that's part of our freedom of as readers is to find our own doors into texts find our own way of loving or hating the, the, the books we read.